Before we start into the message, I uh, just wanted to let you know, you can see that um, I was in Austria to visit Deb and Hamid, who are missionaries that Woodside supports. If you're not familiar with Deb and Hamid and Samuel, their son, and that's my son, Adam, who came with me, um, I would encourage you today to go on our website at some point, on Woodside's website, and go to the Global Missions section, and you can, there'll be a picture of Deb and Hamid, and you can click on that picture, and there's even a link to their specific ministry page and what they're involved in, and just check out a little bit of what, what they're doing. But we were able to go to see them and to just spend some time with them. Obviously, we got to see some sites in Austria. We also got to see the ministry that they do at House of Hope, and uh, got to see them as a family as well. And I just want to encourage you to pray for them. You know, ministry is challenging. It always is. But pray for them as they are in a season of transition. This is, that's House of Hope right there where they work with refugees. And Europe is experiencing quite a change. You know, you've seen the news. They used to have a lot of influx from the Middle East. And now it's, that's stopped or changed quite significantly. And there's much more coming from Ukraine. And so that just means a change in how they do their ministry. So pray for clarity for them as they look to, you know, what they should be involved in in the coming years. Uh, pray for them with this building. Um, many of us are familiar that this building is, that building in the picture is supposed to be torn down, and so they're needing to relocate. But it's funny, it's a similar story to Citizens Church actually being in Trinity United. They have potentially months and maybe years of paperwork that needs to be done first before the building actually comes down. Um, and so they're kind of not sure what the future is looking like for that ministry space. And then just pray for them as a family, you know, pray for their marriage, pray for their raising of their son, and just pray for them as individuals. Um, like all of us, missionaries are not special people. They have challenges in their lives, and so we need to continually, regularly bring them before the Lord. So I just want to encourage you to do that again as you think about them and the ministry there in Austria. It was a privilege for us to go there and to kind of represent Woodside in a little way and spend some time with them. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of, or the, yeah, the book of Psalms and specifically chapter 8 that we're going to look at this morning. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you have been in awe of something? Have you ever witnessed something that you have maybe categorized in that category of majestic, something that is amazing, that's left your mouth open because you saw it. I, I can think of multiple instances in my life where that's happened, um, where I've been able to experience something, and I'm just like, this is amazing. Um, there's been three countries in Africa that I've been into where I've experienced a African night sky, where there's not a city within hours of where I was, and just to be able to look up on a clear night and see the stars with such clarity uh, left me in awe. It was also one time I was able to go down to the border of Brazil and Paraguay and see the Iguazu Falls. Now, I know we live close to Niagara Falls, which I'm supposed to say is better, but Iguazu was pretty impressive, okay? To be in the jungles of Brazil and see this massive amount of tons and tons of water flowing over. 
And then maybe the most awe-inspiring was being in the hospital room when each of our kids were born, all three of them, and astounded that a human has just come out here and now me as a parent, especially when it's your first one, you're like, I have to keep this child alive, right? That's part of my job now. And so I was in awe of the moment. But all of these times, and I'm sure if we went around the room, we could all tell stories, are moments in our lives where we experience the majesty of our world. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist wants to bring us into this text to help us understand the majesty of God and how that can actually direct us and stabilize us even in our lives. The psalms are written in a number of different genres, that's different types of psalms, and Psalm 8 is actually the first psalm of praise. So leading up to Psalm 8, there's like psalms of lament, and there's royal psalms that kind of point to the kingship of the Messiah. But when we come to Psalm 8 here, the author now is getting us to think about the praiseworthiness of God, and it is meant to be a psalm of orientation. So psalms of lament are psalms of disorientation, but psalms of praise are meant to be psalms of orientation. What, what does that mean? It means that if you were dropped into a forest, someone just took a helicopter and kind of dropped you in there, and you had no compass, where would you turn? Where would you go? Maybe if you're like really outdoorsy, you would know where to go. But the majority of us would be lost. But if someone dropped you into the forest and you had a compass in hand and you knew how to use that compass, I guess that's helpful, um, you would know where to go or at least how to start the journey towards help or towards some sort of place where you'd be familiar. That's what Psalm 8 is. Psalm 8 is a psalm of orientation. It's meant to give you a straight direction. When it comes to life and the mystery of all that we experience in life, it is meant to point you in the right direction. And the way that the psalmist does that is by having us first look at the glory of God and the majesty of God. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 1 of Psalm 8. And it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. David is saying, here is the starting point, the glory of the Lord. And it's, it's so clear for us, actually, as we look at the text, because it starts in verse 1, and then you'll see verse 9 at the end of the chapter. That's how he ends it, with the same word for us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's our clue that that's the big idea here, that this is what he wants to leave us with. As we orientate our minds, as we kind of find our bearings, the thing that actually should be driving that is the glory and majesty of God. But David helps us understand that to a, a, a greater depth. He starts by using God's name. He says, O Lord, our Lord. And you'll see in your translation, whatever it is, the first Lord there is all capitalized, which is the word Yahweh. It is the personal name of God, Yahweh. And the second Lord is capital L, lowercase O-R-D, which means he's our master. So here David is saying, this is who God is. 
God is our master. God is the sovereign who, who holds everything together. He is in control of the world. He is the creator of the world. We are not God. He is God. And that is good news for us. But David is also saying that glorious, majestic God is personal, wants to be in intimate relationship with us. He is giving us his personal name, Yahweh. Another example of this that helps us to kind of get this concept of the, the personal nature of God, because sometimes we can think of the sovereign, transcendent, as like a distant, God is just like so separate from us, but this is actually that God is imminent. So in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is talking to God, and Moses is saying, okay, God, you've called me to lead these people, and as I lead these people now, the only way that I'm willing to do it is if you go with us. Will you come with us on this journey and lead us? Otherwise, we're done and I'm not taking the job. And so God says this to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Here for us in the text in Exodus is, is the very same thing that David in much shorter words is telling us that God is sovereign. He shows He's gracious to whom he's gracious. He shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. So his ways are way above ours in terms of doing that. But he is deeply personal. It is an intimate relationship. He is a God like any other God, lowercase g, in this world that we can kind of make up or kind of bring to light. There is no other God like this who is so magnificent and majestic and yet is so intimately personal and is in in need and desire of relationship with us. And so David says, when we think about the glory of God, you have to bring together the majesty of God and this intimate relationship that he wants to have with us. But the glory of God is something that is hard to kind of hang on to, okay? It's not just like something that you can easily grasp because it's so big and so vast and we are so small and simple, right? And so David actually in the text here helps us, uses a couple of examples to help us like dip our toes into understanding what it means to have the glory of God and the majesty of God. And he does that through babies and through nature, okay? Babies and nature. So firstly here, babies actually show off the glory of God. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So David says, okay, there's something interesting here that I want to point out to you, and that's when you see a baby, something that is so weak, that needs so much help, that can't walk away from you, right? It's just like a baby that you're holding, that actually is a moment where you're experiencing the glory of God because there's something that God regularly does in Scripture. 
He takes the things that are weak. He takes the things that look like they shouldn't be able to accomplish anything. He takes the plans that don't look like they're going to actually add up, and he accomplishes his purposes through those very things. So we as humans have this bias toward strength and toward power and towards great planning, and everything should just be like perfectly together, and then God is going to work. And over and over again in Scripture and throughout the narrative, God says, I'm actually going to reverse the order. I'm going to accomplish what I want to accomplish through weakness and through small things, through lack, through loss of planning, like all the things that we're like struggling with that give us like, you know, nervousness and sweat beads. Those are the things that God actually works through. There's an ancient Near Eastern practice where the eldest son of a family generally would have most of the power. And the father would pass on the rights of the family to the firstborn son. And then the others would get little pieces, but the eldest son was generally the one who would call the shots and would be inheriting the most. And throughout Scripture, God continually flips the narrative. There's story after story where God just does it the exact opposite of what would be normal and plain to the people that he is revealing himself. And so we see in the story of Jacob and Esau, where the younger actually serves the older, and they reverse that. We see Joseph, the story of Joseph, the youngest one, ends up rising up and saving the whole family. We see even David, who's this young shepherd boy who does like amazing things, and God uses him. And then ultimately we see Jesus coming in the form of a baby born to Mary and Joseph. Totally the opposite of what any of us would think would be the right way for God to accomplish his purposes. God uses the weak things. And so here then, David is saying it's happening again. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So this is what God is doing. So no boasting. We can't say it was all our plans, it was all our idea, it was all our strength. It's so that God would get the glory. And in the New Testament, we have a a parallel to this psalm right here where Jesus goes into the temple. You're probably familiar with the story in Matthew 21 where he goes in to cleanse the temple, right? The, the Gentiles are being restricted in their access of worshiping God or even coming near to the place where God is worshiped. Sellers are out there with all their goods and Jesus comes in and flips the tables chases people out with a whip and says, this is not what is supposed to happen in this place, in God's place. And then he heals some people. And when that happens, the kids that are there, you know how kids are, they kind of come around and they're seeing all that's happening. The kids that are there, they yell out, Hosanna, son of David. They yell out what only the Messiah should be hearing. And this is what the religious leaders say to Jesus in chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 16. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're like, are you hearing what these kids are saying? These kids are like, they're, they don't know what they're saying. 
They're screaming out something that only the Messiah should be hearing. And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Jesus is saying, listen, religious leaders, these kids are the only ones who actually get it. They're the only ones that understand that I am the Messiah. I am God in your presence. And you religious leaders who've studied the scriptures, who have all the power when it comes to religion, you can't even see it right when it's in front of you. That's what David is trying to help us understand when it comes to God and how he's working through the mouths of babies as they cry in our sanctuary or as they come around you, God is saying the glory of God is on display. God is at work. God is doing something. But not only is it through the mouths of babes, but the psalm goes on to say it is through nature itself. So nature itself shows the glory of God. Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The second example that David uses is nature itself. He says, when you see the handiwork of God, the things that God has made for us, you will actually enter into these majestic moments. And we live in a time when we are seeing more and more of God's handiwork, the things that God has made. I mean, it's been all over the news, the, the James Webb telescope that is taking like ultra crisp shots of our universe. And we are living in a time where scientists are going to like the, the darkest corners of our world and they're finding like the tiniest little animals that are out there. And in 2012, and I had just found this a few years ago, scientists found the nano chameleon. And this is what it looks like. It's the smallest chameleon that they've ever found. And I don't know if you've seen a chameleon before. You know, usually they're about this big or about yay big. In Madagascar, they found this tiny little thing. I mean, you can get why it took so long to find this thing, right? Or maybe the locals knew that it was always there. But this is like a tiny little animal that has been living in a tiny section of Madagascar. And what David is saying is the nano chameleon is actually revealing for us, it's putting a spotlight on the glory of God, the handiwork of God, the amazing creativity of what God is doing as he created the world for us to live in and to enjoy. So it's not just to go in and to scientifically catalog the nano chameleon, which is great. It's probably in some textbook somewhere, okay? But it's actually there for a reason. There's purpose behind its existence, and it's the glory of God to show what God has made for us. And so Romans 1 verse 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul in his argument for the gospel is saying, listen, it is on like constant display for us through all of our senses. 
the majesty and glory of God, that some creator, some being put this together, and we thankfully through God's word, through his revelation, know he has a name. It's the Lord. He's majestic. And he's made these things for us to enjoy him and to know him personally. And so when you're out there enjoying nature and when you're out there enjoying the, the summer, or maybe you're one of those people that like winter, I don't know, when you're out there, okay, enjoying it, you are given like an insight into God and his glory. And David is saying, through the mouth of babes and through nature itself, you are seeing the glory of God. But the psalm goes on. Secondly, he says, you are also made in the image of God. So you've got the glory of God, and now you've got the image of God. So look at verse 5. Well, let me just read again verse 4, just to help us, to kind of bring us into verse 5. Verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? So David is like, do we, is there value to us, or are we just like an addition to creation? Well, verse 5 helps us understand that. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God has created us as people in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. So we are unique from all of creation. All the beauty, all the great things that God has done, we are unique. But we have been made in his image. Genesis 1.27 says it this way. So God created man... In his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So this is how God has created us as image bearers, male and female. He has made us to exist on this planet for his purposes and for his glory. So that means that our identity, our core identity comes from God, our creator, our maker. He is the one who gives us identity. Now, we live in a world where our identities are attached to all kinds of other things other than our creator and God. We used to live in a time where you, basically the outside world or the world that you were born into gave you your identity. So for most of history, if you were like a bread maker or a shoemaker or a, a milkman or something, when you had children, guess what they would be? They wouldn't be engineers. They wouldn't be florists, okay? They would be a shoemaker or a bread maker or a farmer. Generally, it was like they would follow in the line of their parents, and that's how it worked. There was not a lot of room for, like, creative thinking and, like, new careers, okay? It was, like, very static and pretty simple. Now we live in a time, actually, rather than having a outside-in approach, rather than the outside world actually kind of molding me into my identity, we are living in a time where our inner feelings are looking for affirmation from the world around us, and that is actually giving us identity. We're living in a world, what Carl Truman writes, a strange new world, where rather than the outside-in pressure, we're giving inward-out pressure. And so the things that I'm feeling the thing that I'm longing for, that is the thing that I think is my identity, and I'm looking now for the world to affirm that, okay? Now listen, I hope like, like me, it's 
you see a value in like, I don't have to be a shoemaker if my dad's a shoemaker, right? Like there's some value in actually being able to creatively see how God has made us and we have different variety to it. But also having the outside world affirm my identity is super shaky ground. Because it could be a good thing that I put out and everybody loves it, or it could be a bad thing that I put out and everybody loves it or they hate it, but my identity is then built on the affirmation of other people. And that puts me on really shaky ground. And this is nothing new. Charles Cooley, who is a sociologist who lived around 100 years ago, he wrote this. He said, we develop our concept of self by watching how other people react to different versions of ourselves that we present. Kind of sounds like Instagram or Facebook or whatever, Snapchat, whatever is used out there right now, where others are affirming what we feel is our identity. And what David is saying here in the Psalms is the primary identifier of our identity is God, our creator. He is the one who is defining who we are. He is the one who is our solid foundation when it comes to our identity. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. That's a great line. Paul says, what you think doesn't really bother me at all. I'm going to preach a sermon. You like it. You hate it. Doesn't bother me at all. Paul says, I live with total freedom in that regard. But he goes on. So I should not be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I didn't even judge myself. So Paul says, I didn't even know myself. On a good day, I'm loving what I'm doing. And on a bad day, I'm hating what I'm doing. So he's like, I don't even trust myself because my motives are all over the place. So what does he say in verse 4? He says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not therefore acquitted. So he says, I might be guilty, I might not be, I don't know. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, that's the final line for me. I can't judge myself because I can't trust myself and I can't trust the judgments of other people because they're all over the place. Bottom line is the one whose word I'm really most concerned about is God, my creator. He's the one whose image I've been made in. So his is the voice that should be loudest in my life. And so like David and like Paul, how do we come to the to the place of living in that kind of freedom of identity. Because I'm guessing that a, a lot of you are like me and the opinions of other people is very strong still. It's a massive indicator for me, even though it should be. It should not be, sorry. I just said that it shouldn't be, right? The text is telling me not, but it still is. And, and the way that I want to encourage you and I want to give a word of exhortation to you the way to shift your identity conversation and how you interpret what people are saying to you is by primarily listening to God first. And that is really hard for us to do. And so I, I think I've said it even on this stage before. I've said it multiple times at Citizens where I speak most of the time that I encourage people to regularly practice a Sabbath from the thing that is most dear to us, right? 
the phone or iPad or specifically social media. And here's just getting right down to the super practical level. Here's what I encourage people to do. Sabbath from your phone an hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year. Sabbath from your phone an hour a day, a day a week, and a week for the year. But in that space of Sabbath, so if you get there, right, which that's really hard, if you get to that point where you're like, yes, I did it, an hour away from the phone, so you've actually done that one, what, what you need to do then is actually put something in its place. Because Sabbath is not just meant to take something away. Sabbath is meant to take something away and replace it with something better, more valuable, and that's the Word of God. So you Sabbath from what you think is giving you a true identity, but it's not. And you put into that Sabbath space what will truly define you and give you true identity, and you put in the Word of God. So this summer, let's corporately, like, challenge each other. And I'm going to even do it, okay, even though I don't go to this church anymore. I want to enter into that space and put that into practice. Moments of Sabbath. Setting aside, turning off your phone or, or putting it, you know, turning it completely off and entering in then and taking in God's word. But not only does our identity come from God, but we have to recognize too that this is not just an individual thing, but that everybody around you is an image bearer of God. Every person that you come into contact with is an image bearer of God. They have been made in God's image. So in Genesis 1.27, before the fall, they are called as image bearers of God. And in Genesis 9.6, after the fall, all people are also called, they're made in the image of God. So whether you agree with people or you disagree with people, they are all made in the image of God. Whether someone is a Christian or whether someone is an atheist, they are all made in the image of God. And what that should do for us is it should drive us to be, as God's people, all growing in our relationship with who he is and understanding and having those implications change us. It should drive us to be the leaders of valuing people, and showing love and care for people that are around us. And that, my friends, in this day and age of divide and division, that is like radical kind of language. But it is gospel language that we're seeing right here in Genesis and in Psalms and all over the scriptures if we had time. It is here that people are made in the image of God. And so we are called to show love and care. And I've seen people take in strangers in this town, invite refugees into their homes, give people jobs who have maybe made some terrible choices in their life and they just need like a, a 15th shot at it. I have seen people from this church and in this community take radical steps to help people, to self-sacrifice for the good of people, if for nothing else, I mean, we can have all kinds of other reasons, but for nothing else, that at a base level, everyone is made in the image of God. Every single person, no matter 
their choices in life, no matter their religion choices, no matter what country they come from, their race, it does not matter anything. All people are made in God's image. That should be burned in our minds and imprinted on our hearts so that when we interact with anybody, they are left with this same feeling that they are made in God's image. The glory of God, the image of God, and lastly, the work of God. Look at verse, verses 6 through 8, the work of God. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. He's talk, the psalmist is talking about mankind. You have been, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God has given us work to do. We have been called to care for this world that we are living in. Just like God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, your job is to take care of this place. Name these animals, take care of the plants, and, and live here and flourish. That is still our job today. And so we are called to be stewards. With all the richness that this world has to give us, we are called to steward it and to take care of it. A evolutionary mindset would say that we are just one of many creatures living on this planet, okay? We're just, we're just one of millions of different organisms that are existing on this world. So we just like do our thing and it, eventually we're all going to be stardust. The world's going to like burn up in billions of years. Nobody's going to care that I was here, preach this sermon. It's all going to be poof, gone, all right? And we see this kind of playing itself out in the world around us. I, last year I read this book called The Overstory. It's a book about trees, okay? I have this weird thing. I'm just interested in trees, okay? So I keep planting trees in my yard because I just love trees. So this is a book about trees, and it, I thought it was like a bunch of small stories about trees, but it all wove together into one big story, which you don't really care about. But the story says this. kind of gives an interesting perspective on evolution. It says, remember, people aren't the apex species they think they are. Other creatures, bigger, smaller, slower, faster, older, younger, more powerful, they call the shots. They make the air and eat sunlight. Without them, nothing. So basically, the author is saying, listen, we're just one of many species, and we're not even like the biggest one out there. So there's more trees than there are people, or there's more mushrooms or fungi eating leaves in the forest than we are. So, like, who are we really? We're just one little piece of something. And the psalmist says, actually, there's a middle perspective to this. So we're not on the side of we're just, like, one of millions of species. But we're also not on the side of, like, we just can, like, run this planet into the ground and just, like, destroy it. We're actually called to steward it. We're called to live here and to take care of it, even as it degrades because of the curse and because of all that sin is bringing. We are still called to steward the land and do our best to keep it and to see actually the glory of God through it so that it still is an agent that points people to God. Walter Brueggemann says it this way. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he writes this. 
It is not naive to say that the first step in addressing the environmental crisis is to praise God. For praising God is the act of worship and mode of existence that reminds us that we human beings are not free to do whatever our science and technology enables us to do. Praise flies in the face of our culture's tendency to unrestrained exploitation. So, the greatest actual argument for the environment and for care of the environment is actually the praiseworthiness of God. That's what Brueggemann is saying here. That when we see the beauty of the world around us, people will be drawn into, what is this? What am I seeing? This moment of majesty, what do I call that? And we as God's people are to be there, ready, as Peter says, to give them the answer. The awe that you're feeling, the majesty that you're, you don't know what to put your words to, that's God. That's Jesus. And so rather than just having a perspective of, well, it's all going to burn, you know, just let it go, we actually are called to steward this well, to be stewards of the land that God has given to us, even in the midst of the curse and sin degrading. So we are called to be good stewards, but we are also called in this divine work to have divine purpose, to do the work that God has called us to do with a purpose that is unshaken. So whether it's building a product or being a salesperson or a nurse in a hospital, whatever you're doing, when you do that work, you are actually doing what we see as stewardship. We are playing out our role in the great canvas of God's world. We are accomplishing his purposes. Maybe you've heard of the movie Chariots of Fire and this kind of famous line by Eric Liddell that, where he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He was a runner, Olympic runner. And so when he's doing that, someone could have said, you're just, you're just running. Like, what else are you doing? You're just running. You're an athlete. You're running. Eric's like, eh, let me give you a little insight, actually. I'm feeling like the pleasure of God when I do that. And maybe you've experienced that before when you're doing your work. Maybe you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I hate my job, okay? That's a whole nother discussion and a whole nother sermon. But you, many of you, I'm sure, have felt the experience of the pleasure of God in the work that you're doing. And David is saying here in the psalm, when you have the glory of God as preeminent, and you have the God of the universe giving you your identity. Your purpose then comes with greater clarity. The things that you're called to do, whatever that is, comes into sharper focus. And it orientates you, or it's at least it's meant to, orientate you to what God has called you to do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do to the glory of God. So my prayer as you listen to this playlist of psalms is that you are orientated, that there's clarity for you, or at least you take a step towards clarity to knowing who you are in Christ and what God has for you that will ultimately bring glory to his name. 
1966, um, the Beatles, right, one of the great rock and roll bands uh, since we've been, al well, <laughs> since we've been alive. The Beatles, okay, we'll leave it there. They um, wanted to do something different. They wanted to create so a totally new sound, and so they came up with this album called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. And the idea behind it was they were trying to get rid of the history of what it meant to be the Beatles, kind of like the original boy band. And so they said, we need to create a whole new identity. So let's create Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We'll dress up in different clothes. Then we can, with total freedom, unhindered, you know, no shackles, there's no history, there's no Beatles, there's only the Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band. And it gave them freedom to create and to do something completely different. Psalm 8 is meant to be your ticket to freedom. To understand that God is God. His glory is majestic. It is supreme. But he has made you his own. You are identified by him. And now you live and work with purpose. Total freedom. Nobody else can tell you what to do. God is the one who will give you your marching orders. And so we say, God, use me this week for your glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this psalm that opens our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the purposes that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would take a small step this week even closer to you and your vision for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.